Workers asking Pocock, which side are you on? Victoria heads to the polls. Elon Musk burns billions for Twitter lols. Plus, the good news is the New South Wales Super Battery. This is The Week on Wednesday. Hello and welcome to The Week on Wednesday. My name is Ben Davison. I am your co-host and I am being joined by the lovely, the glorious, my wife, your friend, best-selling author of QAnon and On, A Short and Shocking History of Internet Conspiracy Cults, recently Walkley long-listed author, Van Batham. How are you, Van? Well, I'm not great, but I'm here, and I'm going to give it a red-hot go. Thank you for doing the podcast with me this week, darling. For those listeners who are new to the show, there's always some newbies, or those who didn't catch any of the updates during the last month where we've had a short break, it's fair to say that we've had a very difficult time and Van, your mother has passed away. Uh, Yes. So my beloved Marbra, my beloved Marbra, my beloved mother, Barbara Badham, who some of you may recognise from lots of screaming, Vanessa, in the the background when we've done the podcast, she passed away. She had small cell uh, cancer. I cared for her over the last 18 months of her life, which was why Ben and I were doing so many remotes. It was a very special experience to be able to care for my mother and she left this planet um, with nothing unsaid and nothing unforgiven and with me there and it was very beautiful and I want to acknowledge all the workers at Calvary Hospital in Sydney and all of the home care workers and the number of friends and um, just the incredible support that I've been given. It's not easy um, to care for a parent when you're an only child and I really do owe Ben in every single way for making that happen for me um, and just this incredible army of people who who helped me with mum and my beautiful cousins and it's been um, obviously quite an emotionally intense time and when I announced my mother's passing, literally more than a 1,000 people got in contact with me and uh, my mother would have loved it. She always loved a big audience. She was quite the colourful personality and her funeral is on the 6th of December if anybody listening to this knew my mother and wants to attend, please message us and we'll, we'll send you the details. But it's been a very sad time. I mean, my mother lived a big life. She was obviously incredibly influential on my values. Uh, she had socialism of the heart and she really was a very loved and valued member of her community. And, it, yeah, life without her is, is much quieter and I've been very, very sad. Yeah. It's been a very sad time, darling, and you don't owe me or anyone anything, frankly. Um, It's been amazing what you've done over the last 18 months to care for your mum. Barbara Badham, given two months to live, saw off the Morrison government, uh, you know, saw us get married, saw this podcast go from the little thing in the shed to a national sensation, thanks to you. Uh, Saw you write a a best-selling book. 
Uh, she was so proud of you and all of your efforts. And at the same time, you were caring her for her, managing her care, uh, you know, going backwards and forwards from New South Wales to Victoria where we live. And she was an amazing person. And she I, really was. Cool. And, you know, she had such an impact on her community. Like it was really incredible for me when mum got sick, the number of people who sort of engaged with that, like the the postman cried at our doorstep when he found out that mum had gone into hospital and the taxi drivers used to take her to the doctor and the nurses and the receptionists, like everybody, you know, the people at the cafe that she used to drink coffee at gave me a huge bunch of flowers and all of these people she had this huge impact on them because she was basically just an extremely good person. She was friendly. She was generous. She gave her time to people freely. She was amazing in a crisis, my mother, and just had that kind of energy that builds communities. You know, the thing she was, she was incredibly proud to be um, a union member and I had the amazing honour of acknowledging her, her membership at the at dinner I was invited to give a speech to um, the PSA, the Public Services Association in New South Wales and it was just a really beautiful moment that I could talk about how my mother's union politics influenced my own and that commitment to solidarity. Um, but the the thing that gave her incredible pride later in life was that she was a ward granny at the local public hospital and she spent time with kids whose parents were sick or the kids were sick themselves. And it was just such a selfless thing to do. Like my mother just had love to give and cared for kids who were going through things that kids should never have to go through. And I found like this amazing archive of her time there when I was cleaning up at the house the other day and it's just, you know, that commitment to community and solidarity and union and, you know, helping people who need help when they need help and uh, being with the most marginalised and most vulnerable. I'm incredibly proud of my mother, like I'm incredibly proud of the life that she lived and I just hope I can carry her values into everything that I do. And I know that she was incredibly proud of you. She told me that many, many times. And it is incredibly sad. Barb was an amazing person and I was very fortunate to have her as my mother-in-law officially for four months and unofficially for nearly eight years. Um, so I know all of the people who've been listening to the podcast, who've caught up on the weekend wraps that I've tried to do while I was in Sydney uh, supporting you and, and helping you care for Barb, uh, the outpouring of support from the listeners of the week on Wednesday has been immense, and I, I, I want to pass on my thanks to all of all of you who've sent us messages, who've sent us story ideas, who've tried to stay engaged with us during this time, and also just for the solidarity. Um, we will read out our cadre and extend the reach supporter list at the end of the podcast as we always do. Uh, you know, that list grew during the time when we haven't been uh, making podcasts, which I think just blew, blew me away uh, how supportive people have been. And, of course, the union movement has reached out uh, so many people from the movement in so many different ways uh, during what is a really – important and busy time for the union movement. The ITUC, that's the International uh, Confederation of Trade Unions, had their 
global meeting in Melbourne uh, just in the last week or so. But of course, the secure jobs, better pay bill is in the Senate. And Van, you know, when I think about your mother and her unionism and, you know, people should be joining their union, you know, go to australianunions.org.au slash wow, that's W-O-W, because fundamentally, you know, we know Barb was a unionist. We know we're unionists. We know that union members lift wages not just for themselves but for the whole community. And this bill, this secure jobs, better pay bill that's before the Senate that David Pocock has the ability to pass with Labor and the Greens is a way of lifting wages for the low paid, absolutely, but for lots of people right across our economy and needs to happen. And I just I want to make this a personal message to David Pocock because I know he's a decent person. Right? We know he's a decent person because he's spoken about community. He's obviously a very committed environmentalist. And I want to talk to David directly about what is culturally required in this nation for it to be the kind of place that he says he wants to build. David Pocock wants us to take bold and ambitious climate action. Well, one of the best things that could happen to Australians to facilitate what he wants, the kind of sustainable future that we all deserve, is that we need a secure workplace environment and we need an approach to the workplace that means that Australian workers are not living in ongoing terror about losing their jobs and therefore have the the cultural reach and the social agency to commit to the kind of changes that we're going to need in order to make Australia as boldly sustainable as we possibly can. Workers panic when they are in insecure situations because insecure workplace situations mean threats to the rent, threats to the mortgage, you know, threats to your ability to pay for childcare if you have to pay for it. You know, threats to your ability to to manage your life, you know, and to to feed your family. And when you are under threat, that's not really when you have the privilege of thinking about the future and about, you know, social change and cultural activism. When you are under threat, you only really have the capacity to think about the next 15 minutes. And we have seen conservative governments in this country again and again and again stymie the kind of climate action we need and that the world needs us to be a part of as one of the, you know, worst emitters in the world based on, you know, looking at an, an insecure workplace and spreading job fear that greenies were going to come, take jobs away, close industries, you know, make unemployment worse, deny opportunities to young people. And these industrial reforms that the Labor government is putting forward is about bringing security to the workplace so we as a culture, as a community, can actually think about things and be committed to things as a, beyond just our workplace survival. So there's that. But I also um, want to say this to David Pocock, that – one of the things that everybody recognises is necessary for the kind of social transformation that will lead to climate action is collectivism and solidarity. We have to act in concert 
with one another. We have to work together, not just across the economy, across the society, across the culture, family to family, street to street, community to community, we country to country, nation to nation, continent to continent. We have to work collectively to solve what is a collective problem. And Ben, what is the best way of learning collective values? What is the best way of gaining an understanding of how important it is to work together? Well, it's to join your union in your workplace and participate in workplace democracy. You know, we don't use the term workplace democracy in Australia very often, and it's probably because we don't have a lot of it. It's quite common in countries like Germany, which has strong action on climate change, in places like New Zealand, where they have strong action on climate change, places like Norway, where they have strong action on climate change. People participate in their democracy, not just at the ballot box, but in their workplace. They band together in collectives where they have collective interests that aren't determined by their boss, but are determined by them as people, as workers, as a collective of people, and they negotiate and they bargain and they put forward their position. And it and it's really it's really fundamental, Van, to how broken our current system has become. You know, the the theory that we were given was that when unemployment was low, wages would rise. If productivity was high and if profits were being made, then wages would rise and jobs would be more secure because there would be shortages of employment. But unemployment's at 3.4%. Profits are up 26%. Labor productivity is up 13%. But wages have gone backwards 4.2%. More Australians than ever before are working multiple jobs, and those who work multiple jobs are more likely to earn less money than people who have one full-time secure job. This is a broken system that is not delivering what it promised the people of Australia. The evidence is there. It's all very clear. There's a lot of lobbying and a lot of noise and a lot of uh, vested interests that don't want to change this system because when profits are up 26% and CEO wages are up 40%, but workers' wages have gone backwards 4.2% and nearly a third of the workforce is in some form of insecure work, of course there are powerful interests that don't want that system to change. Of course there are. But those interests are not the interests of the Australian people. They're certainly not the interests of people who want a society that can turn its attention to challenges like climate change. To challenges yeah. like how do we make the housing system fairer, which is another thing David Pocock has said he wants to address. And this is the thing, right? Like I understand that David Pocock, so David Pocock is an independent. He's, he, he's a broadly progressive independent, but he got elected because people who voted for the absolutely reprehensible far-right loon, the Liberal Party, Zed Sezelja, last time in 20, in whenever the whenever Sezelja was up last time, yeah. I understand that 
he probably feels like he's in parliament because liberal voters voted for him you know that that people who are traditionally conservative and you know would describe themselves perhaps as small business um people who are traditionally um you know like not the, 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 traditionally not the friends of the the workers movement um you know is a polite way of describing it i understand that david pocock might think that he's beholden to that constituency because they voted for him again david everybody knows who you are everybody knows who you are everybody has been watching you since you went from being an internationally famous rugby player, like a champion rugby player, to being a committed environmentalist. And we've seen your solidarity with other progressive causes. None of the people who voted for you are going to be particularly surprised if you take the values that have defined you, you know, like solidarity, siding with marginalised people, uh, climate action, structural change. No one is going to be surprised if you follow through on those, on 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 that established personal public character, right? And I think that the people of the ACT who voted for you did so because they want you to make the change that you campaigned on representing. And we need you to do this, David. We need you to back in working people to create a structuralization of our workplace that enables people to live <laughs> without like ongoing workplace terror and to have some power in their workplaces again. And Ben's right. Like we have all these other countries on earth where there are incredibly cohesive intersectional solutions to the climate crisis that have been negotiated with the represented communities of working people through their unions. Because amazingly enough, and the recent environmental progress in Queensland really speaks to this, if you negotiate with workers through their unions and you have an understanding of what workers need, what they want, where they see opportunities, because working people are actually experts at the work that they do, you actually end up with much more concrete, embedded, proactive, imaginative environmental solutions. So the involvement in Queensland of the ETU, the Electrical Trades Union, mm. in the negotiations around power generation has been transformative. It's making Queensland one of the great like renewable energy superpowers of the earth because they actually worked with, not against, those unions. And it's transformational. It will create jobs. Obviously, it's creating renewable power. Like it's part of that structural transformation that we all agree is important. So let's not get in the way of that. Let's facilitate, you know, the growth of those kind of communities and interactions. Well, it's it's really interesting, Van, because one of the things that Pocock has said he's concerned about is unions having too much power in this in these new systems. I want to break down where the actual bill is at just a little bit because clearly David Pocock or the Jackie Lambie network, that's Jackie Lambie and Tammy Tyrell, um, have the capacity to pass this with Labor and the Greens. The, the Liberals have said they're against it. Uh, they've said it has no... There's no evidence that it will raise wages, even though the OECD says that it does. The OECD, of course, famously now led by former Liberal Finance Minister Matthias Cormann, who quite infamously said that low wage growth was a fundamental part of the Liberal government's ideology and policy position. But where the bill is at now 
is that Pocock says he supports 80 to 90% of it. There's been a Senate hearing or a Senate inquiry into the bill. Pocock said he wanted more time. The Labor government has provided more time and more Senate sitting days to discuss it. He said he wanted a higher threshold for what constitutes a small business. Uh, Our friend, Tony Sheldon, the senator from New South Wales who chaired the inquiry, has recommended saying that small businesses should be any business that has 20 or less employees instead of 15. So they've raised that threshold. Now, the reason why that's an issue is because fundamentally the bill, the part of the bill, I suppose, that David Pocock doesn't support, the 15 or 20% that he doesn't support. So in theory, he supports limiting the number of rolling contracts people can be put on, that will fundamentally change the way education, TAFE, university operates, uh, how the public service operates. He says he supports what's called the supported stream of multi-employer bargaining. That's effectively your care economy. And I want to be really clear about this. It's easy for David Pocock to say he supports that part of the bill, those parts of the bill, the gender equity parts of the bill, all those things that fundamentally don't, you know, they don't change the fundamental structures, but they play within the framework. They tinker with policy within the framework and they will have positive impacts. No question, but the thing that fundamentally changes the framework is what's called the single interest stream. The single interest stream for multi-employer bargaining would allow workers to come together across multiple businesses or multiple enterprises where they don't have an enterprise bargain and say they want to negotiate a multi-employer bargain. One of the good examples of why big business fears this is that Qantas Today, I've heard reports today that Alan Joyce was in the halls of parliament lobbying against this single interest stream multi-employer bargaining. And do you know why Alan Joyce is so against this fan? Because Alan Joyce is a reprehensible employer who has besmirched the reputation of one of Australia's great companies because he treats workers like garbage and he's outsourced to 11 billion companies in order to strip worker rights, conditions and pay. Well, effectively, yes. Qantas, and these are exact numbers, Qantas currently uses 56 different enterprise agreements. 56. 56. So even though Alan Joyce is the CEO of the Qantas Group, even though all of the companies in the Qantas Group have to report a consolidated set of financials, that's an accounting standard. Even though Alan Joyce as the CEO is responsible for the health and safety of all the people in the enterprise that he's conducting, whether they're employed by him or not, that's a workplace health and safety law. Qantas has managed to divide up and atomize the workforce into 56 different enterprise agreements. The only reason to do that, the only reason to do that is to diminish the power of those workers to negotiate better paying conditions. Now, Qantas is announcing a multi-billion dollar profit, a multi-billion dollar profit. At the same time, their CEO is saying the workers in Qantas shouldn't be allowed to band together 
in Qantas to negotiate one agreement. Now, obviously, under the single interest stream, they wouldn't be allowed to do that immediately anyway because they're all covered by enterprise agreements. What it would mean is Alan Joyce would have to negotiate those enterprise agreements in good faith, which he does not do currently. We know that. He outsources. He He's a bad faith actor in every negotiation he's in. He wants to shut this down. Now, David Pocock has sort of bought a little bit of the big business lobby line about small businesses being caught up and he says that he wants to exclude cafes and hairdressers but not exclude childcare centres. And, you know, on the surface of that, you can see why, right? Like the media is always finding a hard-pressed cafe owner who's struggling to make ends meet and, like, that's always the go-to easy vox pop because there's a cafe on every corner, right? But they never actually go into whether or not the coffee's any good, the food's any good, <laughs> the service, the workers are properly trained or paid. They never get into that. It's always the hard-pressed cafe owner. The other thing they don't get into is the fact that McDonald's is the largest cafe chain in Australia, followed by- What a coincidence, Ben! Like we, we need to break through some of these stereotypes because there's the Coffee Club and Donut King. They have over 2,000 venues combined right around Australia. So when he talks about excluding cafes, we need to think, well, hang on a minute. Labor has said we'll exclude legitimate, genuine small business. But you can't tell me that the Coffee Club, the workers at the Coffee Club, a huge chain of franchises don't have a shared interest. Of course they do. The success of the coffee club as a brand, as a chain of stores, is in the interest of all the workers, whether they work at a franchise in Melbourne or in Brisbane or in Perth. They all have a shared interest in that success. It makes sense that they would have a shared agreement. And when we talk about hairdressers, I think David needs to remember that Just Cuts, Hair House Warehouse, and a company called Barabbas PA Franchising, what? which quite frankly, I don't know what that is. Barabbas. There's there's a, there must be a brand behind that or a series of brands behind that. Those are the largest chains of hairdressers in Australia. They have over 3,000 employees and income of nearly half a billion dollars a year. So when we talk about excluding whole industries or sectors from being able to band together, where the workers can come together and say, we want a multi-employer bargain. We want the commission to determine whether it's appropriate for us to have a multi-employer bargaining. That Again, that's the rule. The rule would be the commission gets to decide. You know, David Pocock and some other people who comment on this are in danger of creating greater divides between workers into creating pools of the deserving and the undeserving, as though somehow or another hospitality, service industry workers are not deserving of the ability and the right to band together and negotiate decent pay conditions. But care economy workers and health workers are, and that's not right. All workers, all workers have a right to collectively bargain, and all workers should be afforded the right to bargain in the collective that best represents them. So, I just, yeah, I right. just think if you're presented opportunities to make 
monumental changes to the lives of ordinary people for the better are really limited in life. They're really limited. And here is an opportunity to do a good, productive thing in support of the values that you claim to espouse that you were elected to enact. You could actually, actually help transformative change, the kind of structural change and, and ex- shared experience of, of collectivism banding together that will, that will lead to the outcomes that you say are so important to you. Why wouldn't you do it? What, to placate McDonald's or Andrew (laughs) Joyce or people who did vote for Zed Sezelja? Like, I just, it's beyond me. It's just beyond me. It really, it really is. And look, you know, David Pocock's not the only one who can make this go through. You know, Pauline Hanson and One Nation could make this go through. Yeah, but they, I mean, they've got zero care for workers, Pauline Hanson and One Nation. They're not even pretending. Jackie Lambie talks about caring about workers. Well, workers in Tasmania are the worst paid in the country. You know, a report came out this week that talked about how workers in Tasmania are not only the worst paid in the country, but workers who work for the same company in Tasmania versus the company operating in the mainland. So this is a brewery company that I won't name because I don't want to give free advertising to a brewery, but a, a brewing company that has workers in Tasmania and workers on the mainland pays the workers in Tasmania $200 a week less. Now, those workers have a collective interest in seeing that brewery succeed and seeing those pay rates be fair and equitable across the organization. So. Jackie Lambie and Tammy Tyrell, they need to stand up for the workers of Tasmania because it's not just that brewery. The report makes very clear, right across multiple industries, workers in Tasmania are getting paid less than workers on the mainland to do the same work, often for the same companies, because they're divided up into these enterprise agreements, which have failed. They have failed to deliver what was promised. So, Pass the legislation. You know, there was a really good article um, in on the ABC van that looked at the sort of five dot points of why multi-employer bargaining is so important and useful and delivering in places like Denmark, Norway, Germany, uh, starting to happen in uh, New Zealand, but also in Austria, the Netherlands, Sweden, Japan, California, right? Like it actually improves employment. It improves wage distribution. So it gets rid of, uh, well, it lowers unemployment. It means vulnerable groups are more able to participate. There's less wage inequality. There's less gender inequality. Uh, There's less as we've talked about before, gender siloing of whole industries. Uh, It also gives you a capacity to have macroeconomic policy implemented by whole sections of the economy. When you think about places like Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, Japan, you think about highly high-performing, highly productive economies uh, because they're able to implement macroeconomic policy. They also deal with their skills and training problems. They actually work together. So rather than poach workers from one another, you have industries developing a pipeline of skilled workers in conjunction with unions and the workers themselves to ensure that they have the skills for now and the future. 
And of course, instead of having 56 different enterprise agreements at Qantas that all have to be negotiated, that all have to be entered into the system, that all have to be monitored, that all have to be adhered to, you end up with whole sectors covered by one agreement that can be more efficiently administered. So all this sort of idea, oh, it's going to be this burden and, oh, it's going to be so hard, there'll be a transition. Of course there'll be a transition. There's always a transition with change. But actually the evidence is very clear that overall there are massive benefits for a huge number of people and for the economic performance of Australia. So just pass the laws. Just pass them. You've got your extra days to think about it. You've heard from all the big business lobbyists. And quite frankly, if Alan Joyce, the man who grounded Qantas, the man who unlawfully sacked 2,000 people, the man who caused chaos in our airports, who took billions in subsidies. A man who is the CEO of a fossil fuel polluting corporation. (laughs) Who wants you to stop or block or change a piece of workplace legislation, then probably, most likely, you really should be passing it. Van? I agree. (laughs) (laughs) I agree. I just, yeah, that's the beginning and the end of it. I mean, I can't even talk about Jackie Lambie because I'm just like, what are you doing? Seriously, what are you doing? And and I get that there's... You know, there's all sorts of interplays and issues there and, you know, Jackie's unhappy with some unions about some things and what happened in the election campaign. I don't even know the whole story, right? So I'm not going to speculate entirely, but I'll say this. Do the right thing. Do the right thing. Always do the right thing. If you're a senator, if you're one of the 76 people who gets to sit in that Senate, you got to do the right thing. You can't go, well, I don't like those people so I'm not going to listen to their point of view. You've got to hear what's happening, see what's happening, and do the right thing. Anyway, talking about doing the right thing, Van, if you're listening to this podcast, the right thing to do on Saturday night is to watch Van and I and Stephen Donnelly and our special guests for our very special election broadcast. Yes, we're doing it again. After the absolutely runaway success of our mad idea to do a federal election night broadcast, which we did live to social media, we did it on Facebook and you could watch us on Twitter and the rest of it, and we just called a bunch of our friends and said, do you want to be guests? And people wanted to be guests. And it was amazing. We had like a significant number of people tune in and so we're doing it again. We are uh, hosting, Ben and I and our friend Stephen Donnelly from the Socially Democratic Podcast and a galaxy of stars, (laughs) um, some of whom we're quite sure you probably already follow on social media. We are, and we will announce them, we're going to drip them out to, you know, build tension and the rest of it. We're going to be calling the state election in Victoria, which has been one of the most unhinged on record, I've got to say. And I think a lot of the really horrible tension around this election, uh, you know, specifically to do with whatever the hell is going on in the Liberal Party and also the really creepy um, neo-fascist weirdos turning up all over the place and yelling at people, um, we are going to make sure it's an election night you spend with friends. We make it more like a party. 
everybody who's on is a comrade or fellow traveller and it'll be like a really nice space to talk about the election and discuss the issues and the rest of it. So if you've ever wondered what would election coverage look like if it was all people I shared values with, Saturday night, let me tell you, is for you. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I think it's really interesting. I saw uh, an article just before we uh, started recording that talked about uh, the sort of bias in election coverage of Sky and people tuning out of the debate that happened uh, last night here in Victoria because it was on Sky and people tuning out of other forms of election coverage too. This is we. It's the week on Wednesday and socially democratic. We are who we are. You know our values. That's how. That's what we bring to the table. The guests that we have are going to be really interesting. Uh, you know, some of the people we had at the on the federal election are going to make a return. Uh, I won't spoil that for you. You'll see that uh, announced as it comes out, and there'll be a whole bunch of new people as well because obviously it's a state election, and the state election is. You know, it, it is close. Probably not as close as I think the media is trying to beat it up to be, but. It is not the the great landslide or the landslide that it was last time. It's not likely to be that. But this is going to be a third-term Labor government in Victoria. The coalition under Matthew Guy, the Liberal National Parties, need to win 18 seats. You've got to get to 45 for victory. There's been some redistributions by the independent Victorian Electoral Commission. And I want to stress that point, independent Victorian Electoral Commission, which meant that Labor notionally started with 58 seats and the Liberals and Nationals notionally started with 19. So there's quite a long way to go for the Liberals to win government. And at the moment, current polling has Labor ahead on a two-party preferred 52 to 47 and Dan Andrews as preferred Premier by a comfortable sort of 15 points. Now, if you've watched any of the media coverage on some other networks, you would think. I love how we're a network now. Hi, everyone. We're a network because <laughs> we do a Facebook Live election show. We're a network. But you would think that it is neck and neck, that it is 50 50, that Andrews and Matthew Guy are comparable in preferred premier, or perhaps even that Matthew Guy is the preferred premier. And I think your point, Van, about these neo fascists that keep turning up, you know, the media's got to stop giving these sensationalist cookers, all this free airtime because the Liberal Party has been infiltrated and 60 Minutes did an did a expose on this on Sunday and, and a Liberal upper house candidate who is in a winnable seat, basically a guaranteed position, has been exposed. Matthew Guy has had to tell her, oh, we know you'll probably get elected, almost guaranteed to get elected, but you can't sit with us because you're a bit of a cooker. The Liberal candidate for Narrowon North has said that he's against the treaty, has slammed women's rights and said that he's against kinder. The, the shadow treasurer had to apologise for drunken antics at a fundraiser. The independent Victorian Electoral Commission has referred the Liberals to IBAC during the campaign because Matthew Guy's office and the Liberal Party were not cooperating with their investigation into Matthew Guy's former chief of staff over what are potentially illegitimate campaign contributions. And 
the Liberal response to this VEC referral, where they said we have not had full cooperation, was to attack the VEC and to call for the election to be postponed. I mean, these are this is in the Liberal Party. This isn't even the fringe groups that the Liberal Party has preferenced above Labor. Absolutely outrageous. Anybody who's read my book, Q and on and on, knows just how dangerously unhinged those fringe groups are. And I, I feel I should point out, I have just shared a thread um, from our friend on Twitter, Matt Burke, who tweets as Matt T. Burke, definitely worth a follow, um, with some pretty comprehensive social media posts from senior Liberal Shadow Minister Nick Wakeley uh, posing with the Knox Freedom family. Now, the Knox Freedom family is one of these sort of fringe outfits. One of the group's founders and online administrators is Rebecca Spellman, writes Matt Burke, a far-right Freedom Party uh, person who called for the Premier to be hanged. And she's also the founder of the anti-Semitic far-right protest group Project Phoenix, says Matt. This is quite an extensive thread looking at relationships between prominent liberals and uh, people I can only describe using the professional term wackadoo. So, yeah, Catherine Cumming, who, of course, uh, is the MP, I believe, she, I believe she's independent now, but she's she's a cooker. Upper House, yeah. Um, yes, in, Upper House MP is the one who called for Daniel Andrews to be turned into red mist, that is, you know, liquefied uh, through gunfire. And um, can I just can I just add to that, Van? Because and she said this. If you if anyone's seen the footage, you'll see that she very deliberately refers to him as Red Mist. In her sort of apology, non-apology apology, she said she was referring to Red Mist as the Red Shirts scandal, which is... Yeah, no, no. Because in the original footage, she clearly says Pink Mist. And she clearly refers to. Oh, sorry, army pink snipers. mist. Sorry, did I get it wrong? I think no, I. She says she does say let's turn him into red mist, or as an army sniper might say, pink mist. Now that is what army snipers say when a target has been eliminated. It is a very clear, very clear threat against the person of the Premier of Victoria. Now. As I understand it, the police are saying there's nothing to investigate there. That may well be the case. But that's not the kind of person who should be sitting in the upper house of any parliament. The upper house is supposed to be the house of review, the house where karma heads are supposed to prevail out of the cut and thrust of daily politics to ensure that government is functioning properly and in the interests of all of the people, not a place for cookers, loons, wannabe assassins, wannabe snipers. Yeah, cosplaying revolutionaries. Like it's just outrageous and unacceptable. It really is. It's terrible and it's... I mean, the threat, some of the behaviour that we've heard about from friends who are working on pre-poll about the behaviour of loons, just coming up, abusing people. I mean, there's been plenty of this online. I mean, these people, what, what I get really angry about, Ben, is that we have a wonderful voting system in this country 
like compulsory voting, as you and I call it, universal enfranchisement is wonderful because it means extremists can't form government because they're extremists. They only yeah. represent, you know, 10, 20% of the population at their, at their most influ- influential where everything else gets decided in the middle and you have to form a broad coalition, which is one of the reasons why the coalition is a coalition, um, in order to get elected. So you represent as many diverse constituencies and communities as, as possible. That's why our election system is the way that it is. And the terrifying part of this election is that the Liberal Party are having an identity crisis. I think that's quite that's quite obvious. The fact that you had all of those Teals who ran in the last election, um, mm. they were from traditionally voting Liberal communities. They represented traditionally Liberal voting constituents. A lot of them have pretty traditional Liberal Party kind of attitudes. One's, one would say, you know, you're in your sort of Chris Public like um, liberal moderate kind of um, Malcolm Turnbullish kind of way. And obviously when those people are drifting away for, from the Liberal Party, that's disastrous for them internally. The, the solution, any Liberal Party organisers listening to this, um, and I know obviously millions of you are, is not to embrace anti-vaxxers and wackadoos and people who are involved with questionably anti-Semitic organisations, but that's what's happening. Like there has been quite a structural um, and tactical engagement by extremely hard right political actors in the Liberal Party because they cannot get elected on their own. They they can't get elected as the Freedom Party or the Wackadoo Party or the, you know, like frothing nuff-nuff front. But if they can be hidden by the Liberal Party branding, that's how they get into these positions. The idea that that extremely questionable woman was pre-selected top of the ticket, that is a guaranteed win because, you know, traditional Liberal voters will presume that the party is acting in their best interest to represent their values. The fact that she is going straight into Parliament effectively is is genuinely terrifying. And, I mean, it's a condemnation of Matthew Guy. Now, I want to be very clear. I don't believe Matthew Guy is a fascist. I don't. We have very different politics. He is a neoliberal, absolute light in the eyes, free market zealot. I don't think there's any question of that. And the fact that he was like, oh, I wouldn't listen to unions in government. Would the Labor Party listen to the IPA? It's like the alternative to unions is not the IPA, Matthew. Nobody listens to the IPA, do they? Um, who are a free market <laughs> think tank and, you know, also yeah. as far as neoliberalism goes, a front of wild balloons. But I don't think he's a fascist, but I think there are fascists in his party now. And I think his leadership has been so weak and insipid and that party so rent with internal division that he has literally lost control of vetting. He's lost control of any kind of candidate assessment process that if he is, if he is not if he doesn't have the stuff to actually police inclusion of who represents the liberal brand and that brand is being reduced from a traditional centre-right sort of pro-business, little bit socially conservative kind of outfit to whatever the caravan of just loon is going on now, there is no way he deserves to be Premier of this state. I mean just because he can't do it. Because if you can't even represent the overwhelming constituency of the Liberal Party, in the Liberal Party, I don't think you can represent all Victorians. I just don't think you have it in you. Yeah, look, I absolutely agree. And, and look, the, the polling suggests the same, right? Like 
yeah, predictions vary and there might be some weird outcomes on the night, but it does look increasingly like the and you know tune in to our broadcast because Stephen Donnelly is a is a former assistant secretary of the Victorian Labor Party he knows this stuff inside out but you know you need to win at least one of the regions of Geelong Ballarat and Bendigo and the Sandbelt uh or you need to completely upend the electoral map and i think that Matthew Guy hoped or was putting his hopes on getting preferences from the cookers, from the wackadoos, to upend some parts of the electoral map, that now looks increasingly unlikely, and they do seem to be doubling down on that sandbelt southeastern part of Melbourne to try and pick up seats there, and frankly save some seats as well, because there are uh, people from that our community matters that teal sort of movement who have put their hand up and are running who are going. Why would you? Why would you elect the the guy named Dragon who doesn't believe in abortion, doesn't think that there's any problem with the way Aboriginal people in Australia have been treated, who doesn't believe in kindergarten, who claims to be a liberal when you can vote for this very nice liberal traditional liberal values independent who is attached to and represents all of the branding that you voted for in the federal election. I think the Liberals have significant problems. Don't get me wrong, Labor's going to have swings against it in some of its heartland. There are people who are angry about the lockdowns. There are people who have been disenfranchised because of the pandemic. It's another reason why we need industrial relations reform in this country. There are too many people on insecure contracts and sham contracting arrangements in vast parts of Western Melbourne and Northwestern Melbourne and Northern Melbourne who, quite frankly, were left behind during the pandemic. And, you know, Labor's tried to do some good things to fix some of that around casual pay for casuals, uh, around tightening up on the gig economy stuff, but it federally has to happen as well. So, look, it's going to be an interesting few days. Hopefully, common sense will prevail. Labor will win a majority government. And what happens in the upper house is that we don't end up with the cantina scene from Star Wars, as is so commonly referred, but we end up with a a at least sensible group of upper house MPs uh, to look at legislation. Well, I but know then, who I'm voting for, and it isn't a loon. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's also I- not a weak, spineless loon facilitator. <laughs> absolutely. Well, you know. Talking about weak, spineless loon facilitators. Oh, are we talking about Elon Musk? We are. Yeah, he's a weak, spineless loon facilitator. <laughs> yeah, look, you know, I wanted to touch I'd on this. I'd love that to get trending, by the way, everybody. Just just as a as a private joke with with Week on Wednesday listeners, I'd love to see that weak, spineless loon facilitator. It'll be interesting if people work out it's Elon Musk or just presume it's Matthew Guy or maybe someone else. I love it. I love it. Could be so many, so many of them seem to be in positions of power and influence these days. So, I mean, I just wanted to talk about this because while we while we have been uh, on hiatus, obviously Elon Musk has bought Twitter. It was made platform. to buy Twitter because 
he made an offer that turned out to be binding $44 billion. Yeah, and if if you, you know, Van, you and I have had a chance to have a look at some of the texts and the, the uh, interplay between Elon Musk and the former CEO of Twitter and the former chair of Twitter that basically preceded him legally being bound to buy Twitter for $44 billion. And it, and it's just like it's teenage stuff. Like it's so um, amateurish and uh, just so like uh, uncareful and loose uh, and really disturbingly so. Like I don't know how he's gone about getting – uh, some of the loans that he's got. So just to break it down for people really quickly, Musk paid $44 billion after making a binding offer um, almost accidentally. He was taken to court. He was forced to buy it. He's taken it off the NASDAQ stock exchange. Uh, of that $44 billion, $27 billion is his own cash and $15.5 billion of that cash was made up of Tesla shares that he had to sell to facilitate this. Originally, he was going to try and loan or lend the money, borrow the money, I should say, borrow the money uh, almost entirely. He was unable to do that. He's had to stump up cash. There's another $5.2 billion that comes from investor groups like the Qatar Sovereign Wealth Fund, Qatar obviously hosting the World Cup. Uh, if you're paying any attention at all, you get a total sense of who the Qatar Sovereign Wealth Fund represents. It represents the Qatar royal family who do not share uh, our views. That's your and my values, Van, around workers' rights or the human rights of LGBTIQA plus people and individual rich guys like Larry Ellison and Prince Al-Waled bin Talan of Saudi Arabia. They chipped in uh, some billions of dollars. And then he borrowed, he did manage to borrow $13 billion from banks, Morgan Stanley, Bank of America, the Japanese banks, Mitsubishi UFJ, Financial Group and Mizuho, Barclays and the French banks, Societe Generale and BNP Paribas. They're all secured against Twitter, not Musk. So Twitter, the company, is liable if Musk as the owner defaults. This is not an uncommon kind of structure for a for a buyout like this, but it's interesting that those banks have contributed so much money to the largest purchase of a social media platform in human history because none of them have ever been successful. And right. you were telling me about this the other day. I was telling you about this the other day. Uh, it, it, you know, infamously there was Rupert Murdoch um, and his multi-million dollar takeover of MySpace, which collapsed after he bought it and collapsed in value. There was Bebo. Remember Bebo? Um, I can't remember who bought Bebo. Was it Yahoo might have bought Bebo? But again, yeah. massively overvalued, bought it and it crashed. Like we've seen this again and again and again with these massively overvalued tech companies. And what Musk has done is on an extraordinary scale, like $44 billion for Twitter, because you know there are there's a trail of his messages. There are messages 
with his ex-wife where she's complaining to Lula Riley, who, by the way, never going to watch anything you're in ever again to Lula, um, overwhelmingly because I think you have such poor taste. Um, she was complaining that Twitter had deplatformed the Babylon Bee, which is a right-wing fake news site from the United States, and she was like, oh, my God, can you just, like, buy a Twitter and record already? And, like, you know, the desperate loser that he is, Musk has fulfilled to Lula's wish and bought Twitter and he's going to fix it. It, apparently. Well, this is very interesting um, from Elon Musk, who rather undeservedly holds the reputation of being a genius. Uh, people claim that he invented PayPal. He didn't. Um, he was working on a similar technology at the time and had the capital to merge his company with the dudes who did actually in, invent PayPal. He was CEO for nine months and then he was sacked as CEO. He went on with the capital that he made um, from PayPal and the ownership stake he had in it to buy Tesla. So he didn't invent Tesla cars. That's not what he does. Um, other people invented the Tesla cars and he took ownership of the company and obviously raked in, you know, this great libertarian who, you know, believes in free speech, man, and no restrictions has made his fortune off the back of government contracts um, with the technology he provides them that is invented and refined by engineers who are not him um, and is now deciding that he's a media baron with absolutely no training or experience in this particular venture. And it is kind of extraordinary what's been going on. So he sacked more than half of his workforce uh, at, at Twitter. Um, he's uh, made statements that, you know, are pretty disturbing about like, oh, yeah, this isn't a right-wing takeover, it's a moderate takeover, implying that the people he fired were fired because they were left-wing, which is kind of an extraordinary thing to do. Um, the the stuff about the number of people he fired and the way that he fired them, people found out from emails whether they had jobs or not. Then they were told unless they all returned to the office and accepted his hardcore workplace conditions and were basically prepared to work until one thirty in the morning, that if they didn't agree within 24 hours they no longer had a job. That's also illegal, by the way. Um, I think he's learning rather a lot about international labour law because he <laughs> doesn't seem to understand that not everybody is a libertarian, not every country on earth is a kind of libertarian free-for-all that exploits workers and treats them like dirt. Um, and rather a lot of countries have quite strong labour laws about how you can treat your workforce, especially when it comes to firing them. Uh, sacked workers were promised three months of severance. Money hasn't turned up. Um, Twitter itself is just leaking like a shot bag. And there's the issue that he's published photos of, yeah, man, staying up all night, having a brainstorming session, and people have observed that the people who are in these photos appear to be people who are on migrant guest worker visas where if they quit their job at Twitter they'll be deported um, in the case of being in the United States. Like it's awful. And a lot of articles have appeared about how Twitter is breaking down because they've lost so many engineers. Uh, no one can actually explain what's going on because the entire communications department at Twitter has gone. Um, the people who did safety and security are gone. Obviously, uh people who are in the information security space are recommending that people purge their Twitter archives, certainly delete all their um, direct messages, uh, try and take control of their accounts. Um, the recommendation is if you want to get off Twitter, uh, just purge all of your files and keep your name and lock the account, but don't deactivate it because within 30 days, just anyone can come and get your account under your name and misrepresent you. Obviously, we have the issue that uh, that 
Elon Musk wanted to charge people with blue ticks, people like myself, $20 a month for the privilege of having a blue tick. I have a blue tick because I had my Twitter hacked by some lunatic from 4chan um, who sent racially abusive messages to my close personal friends and uh, having hacked my account, put out porn um, from my account claiming that it was me in order to humiliate and destroy my life. And verification was a means by which people could be uh, confident that post-hacking and with enhanced security, they were actually hearing from me so I could be held accountable for the things that I say. Like having a blue tick is a safety and security me- measure for people who work in government, in, in, in represent corporations, represent NGOs, work in the media, people whose the significance of their words needs to be verified. That's why it's not a lords and peasants situation, although Musk claimed that it was. And then um, when Stephen King was like, Stephen King, the author, was like, shove it, I'm not paying 20 bucks. And let's remember, Stephen King has more than 20 bucks to go around. (laughs) Um, He immediately dropped his price to eight bucks. And, of course, you've got all of these people who bought Twitter verification handles for $8 a month and who started pretending to be famous people. They pretended to be LeBron James and because it had a blue tick, it looked legit, and this paid account claimed that um, LeBron James was taking a transfer to another team and, of course, carnage on the internet. Oh, my God, is LeBron, um, you, you know, leaving, changing? What does this mean financially, the rest of it? Someone pretended to be the pharmaceutical company Eli Lilly and announced that insulin would now be free. Uh, somebody pretended to be weapons manufacturer Lockheed Martin and said we're no longer going to be selling arms to the United States of America or Saudi Arabia because of human rights abuses. Uh, it, you know, it, Pepsi was putting out, you know, supposedly Pepsi was putting out statements saying, drink coke like it was absolutely mad and Eli Lilly and Lockheed Martin shares collapsed and this has just been what three weeks like it is absolute carnage and not to mention Elon Musk has revealed himself and there's been consistent behavior from him on this front he did accuse um, the guy with like not only no evidence but entirely just out of malicious spite, the guy who rescued the boys from Thailand who were trapped in that cave, Elon Musk decided to call a pedo guy, um, which was absolutely untrue and the dude took him to court. Um, and he's been posting just just gross sexist material and uh, through his account since he's taken ownership of Twitter um, there are no restrictions on what he can do he's sacked the board he's sacked all of the senior staff it is a one-man dictatorship there and you know it is really interesting the the backlash so he's also by the way re-platformed Donald Trump he's offered Donald Trump his account back Um, he's also given accounts to people like Project Veritas Project Veritas uh, and organization in the United States. They're another fake news organization that does things like create, um, they pretend to be uh, women trying to get abortions and then do these sort of sting videos supposedly exposing nefarious, you know, Planned Parenthood, forcing people to get abortions and it's all garbage. But Project Veritas like actively campaign to deny women access to abortions in the parts of America where you can still get them. Like the most reprehensible parade, Jordan Peterson, um, who's just a genuinely terrible human being, um, transphobic misogynist. Um, I like to think of him. I like to think of him as the drug addict philosopher, Jordan Peterson. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I don't because, you know, drug addicts are, are not bad people trying to be good. They're sick people who, you know, generally trying to get well. And yeah. he 
he's just a bad person. Like That's he's true. a genuinely unpleasant individual and drugs cannot Im- improve or um, impair him, sadly, uh, I think is the – but, you know, being addicted to benzos is pretty 70s, let's be honest. However – you know, just these reprehensible characters who were deplatformed from Twitter because they were dangerous, because they advocated extremist positions. Donald Trump incited people to overthrow the democratic institution of government in the United States at a riot on January 6, 2021, in which several people died. Like that's why he lost his Twitter account, not because he was such a renegade and whatever. And Elon Musk is just an apologist for all of these positions. He's platforming them. He doesn't care what happens to you or me or our communities or anybody else because of platforming hatred. He's insulated by a, a, a wealth bubble so vast and so in, overinflated that he was able to spend $44 billion on a social media company. I mean, it is just disgusting. It is disgusting. And put it into context, $44 billion is more than the Australian government invests in the NDIS. So, you know, recently there's been lots of discussion in Australia about, you know, the cost of the NDIS. Q&A on Thursday of this week is going to be discussing the NDIS. And I can guarantee you the, you know, the cost of the NDIS is going to be a thing. Well, Musk paid more for Twitter than our country is investing in facilitating the participation in our society of people with disabilities. That's, I mean, just to give it some scope and some scale for for people because it is an almost unfathomable amount of money. It is more than almost any government program in Australia. That's how much he's paid. And let's be really clear, a third of the top advertisers in Twitter have stopped advertising on the platform because he's allowed people like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate and reactivating people like Kanye West uh, and uh, Donald Trump. Uh, He's just absolutely smashing that. And when I say smashing, I mean breaking it up. He is breaking that uh, company. And, you know, this is a Silicon Valley tech bro kind of thing, you know, move fast, break quickly. Um, and then build again, well, I don't think it's going to work. And, you know, it's hard to tell when it's a private company because there's no daily stock ticker, there's no movements in the market, right? And that's one of the reasons why and and Elon's, you know, uh, evidence in the case that made him buy the company makes clear that he doesn't think he could change Twitter the way he wanted to unless it was private because a publicly listed company does have constraints on it. And it's interesting because Elon is still the CEO of Tesla, which is a publicly listed company. He's the CEO of six companies. And those companies are suffering because of Elon Musk's behavior. He has he has taken engineers from Tesla, a electric vehicle company, and sent them to Twitter to help him with his takeover. There's a court case at the moment that he is misusing the resources of Tesla for his own purposes, even prior to the purchase of Twitter. Tesla shares are down nearly 25% over the last six months, 50% over the last year. Now, people say, oh, the stock market's all very fluctuating, all the rest of it. The NASDAQ over the last six months is down 3%. 
Tesla, supposed to be the world's largest electric vehicle maker, frontier of the future. Share prices are about cash flows now and future cash flow. And what the market is saying is that Elon Musk, as CEO of Tesla, is a risk. He is a liability. He is not an asset. And part of that is based on what he is doing at Twitter. And this libertarian, it's not right-wing if we don't say it's right-wing approach to how he is destroying that social media platform. And, you know, I think it's doomed to fail. I mean, your analysis obviously comes from, um, you know, just in terms of the corporate decisions he's making, like he is in real trouble in the EU in terms of the way that he's treated his workforce there. In Ireland, they're not screwing around about how you can and can't treat workers um, for example, and it's, I mean, it's, there are just lawsuits bleeding around him at the moment, which are, and of course he's decided he's rehiring because he sacks so many people. He's now advertising to rehire other people. And I mean, there are national security concerns in terms of who's going to be allowed access to this piece of infrastructure. Politicians use, policymakers use, all these other people. Like there are issues for the Biden administration to consider about having a corporation like that in the hands of, um, you know, investors from governments and entities that may not exactly be friends of the United States. Like it's all it's all getting very, very murky. But part of my analysis about why I think it's going to fail is that like I'm still on Twitter. Like yeah. I'm keeping a toe in that water because it is the public square. It's where, you know, media corporations are based. Obviously to do my job at The Guardian, I read 100 articles a day so I can stay ahead of news and have a comprehensive understanding of how the world works, etc. But there is a migration going on where people are leaving Twitter because they don't want to be holden to Elon Musk. And like a lot of other people, I've set up an account on Mastodon, which is a federated um, it's like it's very, very much like Twitter. By the way, if you're trying Mastodon, you're like, oh, it's so confusing. Just pick a server, any server. You can always pick another one yeah. and your followers come with you when you change and get an app called MetaText, which just makes everything look like on Mastodon look like Twitter and it's very easy to use. Trust me, like it's the way to do it. And I've set up on Mastodon because I don't, I'm, I'm not going to give any money to Twitter. I'm not going to give any money to Elon Musk. A company with such poor security at the moment, do not give him your credit card details under any 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 um circumstances i'm also boycotting literally everybody who advertises on twitter like i'm not giving any of those corporations my money and also to lula riley did i mention (laughs) i'm watching any of your entertainment products anymore and like i'm just one person but 430 million people use twitter and if the majority of them make the same decision a lot of people are going to see consequences but one of the reasons why i think it's um that twitter is going to be in trouble is that this might Migration is taking a lot of people who are quite, you know, influential voices. And I'm talking uh, uh, about the tech correspondent Taylor Lawrence and former Labor Secretary of the United States Robert Reich, very popular tweeter. Um, people like Magda Zabansky, close to home, at me and Jane Cara and Mike Carlton, um, and you know the kind of people who you would see. George Takei from Star Wars is amazing LGBTQIA. Star Trek. Huh? huh? 
From Star Trek? From Star Trek, sorry. Yes, I do know it's Star Trek. I have seen every episode. I'm obviously unwell. Um, like, you know, those kind of prominent progressive identities are engaging in this migration to Mastodon. There's another site called Post which is attracting some people and an alternative will be found. And why this is a problem for Elon, oh, yeah, it's not a right-wing takeover, man, <laughs> is because the trouble that Trump and all the Twitter alternatives have had, and this is quite significant. So um, when Twitter started deplatforming crazy right-wing loons like Milo Yiannopoulos, um, the right-wing people were like, oh, my God, we don't have open season on Twitter anymore. Fine, we're going to start our own networks. Um, there's a horrible right-wing network called Gab, which if you don't believe anti-Semitism is a thing, you should really go there and you'll know all about it in about five minutes. It's awful. Um, there was another one I can't even remember what it was. There was Vote. That's since gone. Yeah. There was Parler. Well, Does everybody remember Parler? Yeah. Yeah, they all they all fail. Yeah, yeah, and the reason why they fail, and there's a lot of writing around this, is that right wing people are only they're not really happy talking to one another. Right wing people want to troll left wing people. Like yeah. They want to attack left-wing people. That's how they sort of affirm their values to one another is not through a community conversation about, hey, man, are you right-wing? I'm so right-wing, man. Like that's not how it works. It's like, no, screw you, communist kind of thing. And th their platforms have all been really unsuccessful because they want to hunt basically people like me and those other sort of prominent left-wing celebrities that I've talked about. And like Twitter has evolved with strong platforming as a place for a majoritarian democratic conversation for a lot of people. Like I've talked before about how I've been in conversations and very exposed to the ideas of, you know, American neocons, people who, by the way, yeah. were my absolute deathly enemies like 20 years ago intellectually who are mm. now trying to save democracy in the United States. And even though I disagree with some of the fundamental assumptions of their ideology, as you can imagine, I am no neoliberal, it's given me an opportunity in that moderated space to be exposed to their ideas and recognise there are areas of common ground and that's supposed to be how the democratic project works. Well, people like me and people who want to be part of that pluralistic conversation, I'm not going to say on Twitter to get harassed by Jordan Peterson fanboys, like I'd rather <laughs> stick a brick in my eye. You know, we're going yeah. to go to other platforms. And, of course, if those right-wing loons are the only customers Elon Musk is attracting, Twitter is going to go the same way as Truth Social and Parler and Vote and all the Absolutely. rest of them. No, look, absolutely, and it'll it'll be an an emerging and evolving situation, and you know we will continue we will continue to report on it, and we will continue to participate in the platforms as is appropriate. Uh, and if it becomes no longer appropriate, then we we'll, we will change entirely. You know, I've got that to say, part of me is hoping he just loses so much money that the board of Tesla do decide that the, the shareholders move to sack him and that he offloads Tesla at a bargain price. And by the way, that's what happened with a whole bunch of those platforms that I mentioned before. The guys who sold Bebo to whoever they sold it to for some insanely inflated price ended up buying it back from whoever bought it for like a million dollars and made millions and millions and millions on the sale. <laughs> So part of me is hoping that's what happened because I love Twitter. Like I yeah. have met a lot of good comrades and friends and found a community there, really interesting conversations that have developed my mind. And I know a lot of people feel the same way, but I don't love Twitter more than I dislike Elon Musk, unfortunately. Yeah. So I have so maybe, set up so a presence on Mastodon. Yeah, Mastodon and maybe it's hashtag bring back Jack. 
Um, we've got to move on to the good news story very, very quickly. Uh, this was sent in to us by one of our supporters. Uh, this is, uh, and I liked how this kind of synced uh, in with the Tesla component and the Elon Musk component. New South Wales is going to have a huge Huge battery. The Waratah Super Battery will be the largest energy storage facility in the world. It's going to sit on the former location of the Munmora coal plant that was demolished in 2017, uh, and it will help replace electricity that will be no longer available after the era ring thermal generating station is shuttered in 2025. And the connection to Tesla, not only is this bigger than the Tesla battery that was installed in South Australia in 2017, which was the biggest at the time, but the managing director of the company that is building the Waratah super battery is a former Tesla employee. <laughs> so it's really interesting. BlackRock, the massive um, multinational global asset owner, has bought the company, which is called Akasha, uh, based on the strength of the team, the pipeline, and is putting $700 million into the Australian grid battery space through uh, this platform. It will consolidate a whole range of power projects and you know, it means that we're going to have batteries as a form of transmission infrastructure uh, that renewables can feed into and ensure the the stability of the grid, lower the cost of electricity, and of course reduce our carbon emissions. And the beautiful part of it is Elon Musk will have nothing to do with any of it. Yay! <laughs> That's the good news. For this week, Van, we do need to give a shout out to our cadre and our Extend the Reach supporters. Not only do we always say to people, you need to join your union, but there are people who also do contribute to help us run the podcast, fund the tech, you know, make sure we can get the word out to people. We've never paid for ads on Twitter, but we do pay for ads on other platforms. And our cadre contribute $20 a month to that effort and our Extend the Reach supporters contribute $10 a month. And there are also our Buck a Week supporters and people who make one-off uh, contributions as well. Have you got the cadre list there, Van? Oh, baby, yes, I do. You ready? You're going to time me? Yep. Our cadre, Karina Bully, Adjane C. Campbell, Leona Gimmons, Someone, Shane Horsfall, Kristen Secluna, J- Gabe Kramer, Stephen mm-hmm. Aitken, Trish Corey, Greg Miller, Kathy Birch, Fiona, Ad Evergreen Vs, Geoda, Ad Jed Carney, Kristen Cole, Justin Dando, Tamara James, Bromwin, Punch Drunk Veteran, Ad Jenny Forster 7, Joe Fleming, Andrew Pascoe, Cassandal Tui, Addison Official, Ian Hampson, no Twitter for me, Hannah Honda, Sam Herriot. I met Hannah the other day. Hello, Hannah. Sam Herriot, Alexandra Sutherland, Matt Bush, no relation, Richard Sands, I'm not on Twitter, Glenn Robbie, Brash Daniels, Kylie Phillips, Atley, Archer, Linda Cartwright, Atley Ann Shingles, Donna Chapman, I don't have Twitter. My name is Susan Myers at Carrie Nash 20, Billy 3 McCabe, Nurse Simon at Kedigal, Lauren Ashen Banjo. Hi, Matthew Hadley at Naranga Man, John Sharp and Peter Bath, Aaron Rollins, Louise Watson, also known as Red, White and Blue Lou. Our Extend the Reach supporters are Stuart Munn, Marky Mark, Vic M. Bitt, Adrian Valente, Maritza at Carriedale 68, Frank Nihus, Erica Pizzuti, Claire Jolapino, Steph Rachel Fitzpatrick, Kerry Arthur, Pauline Bate, Helen Cameron. 
Tridrag and Damien Marley, Daniel at Crazy Cares at John DeHaan at Ange Fennell, Anna Uren at Ross Kenner 888, Kathy Burgess, Kirsten Black, Melanie Dinning, Jody A. Not on Twitter, Karen Penelope Judge, Jane Holloway, Spirit of Anger and Hope, K. Not, Love Your Work, Didham, Sharon Kelly, Beck and Lola, Hello Lola, Richard Graver, Someone, Vita W. Tanya George, Nandita Hannah, Maury Louise Hawker, Megan Wicked Graham, Oxley Beck, Cody Tracy Lucas, Sandy Hine and Akalvest, Greg Martin, Trainer, Amy Fawcett, Not on Twitter, Sarah Elian and Andrew Ibis Billet, Andrew Brian, Peter OC, Linda, Sam Hadid, Kip Patterson, Lizette Twistle, Buncombe Basher, Katie Ward, Ather Ridden, Neville Longbody, Sandy Baumgart, Atmon Sandy B, and Renee McGray, M- M- Renee McGee. We love you all. You're amazing. Thank you so much to all of you for sticking with us over this last month. It's been uh, an extraordinarily difficult time, and hopefully, you've enjoyed this extended edition of the week on Wednesday. We hope to do still more episodes uh, between now and the end of the year. Obviously, don't forget to tune in with uh, Socially Democratic on Saturday night. Uh, And of course, on Sunday, we'll do a quick wrap up for the weekend wrap of the Victorian election and any other things that may have happened. Who knows? Maybe Twitter will have collapsed by then. Who knows, Van? <laughs> Until then, love you, Vanny. I love you too. You're the best. Thank you, Bye. everyone. Bye.